player or you're new to practicing solo, you've got your game plan. Now what? First, know that you're not alone. It's the fastest growing segment of the legal profession. Welcome to New Solo here on the Legal Talk Network, where you'll learn about practicing law solo. Welcome to New Solo on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad that you could listen today to our podcast. I'm attorney Kyle Gelcher. I'm a solo practitioner from Springfield, Massachusetts. I practice a variety of areas of law, including general civil litigation, business law, entertainment law, intellectual property, and consumer law. On New Solo, we're going to talk about all the things you may not have learned in law school if you're a young lawyer and all the things you may be facing if you've left uh, a larger firm and now you're starting out on your own or with colleagues in a smaller firm. I recently read a great article uh, from the Thomas Jefferson School of Law website. It's entitled uh, Practical Advice for Law Students. It was uh, thoughtful. It was concrete. It was it was a, a very useful article, and, and it gave great advice to students who are seeking to become a solo practitioner. Um, today on New Solo, I'm joined by the author of that article, Attorney Luz Herrera, an assistant professor of law at Thomas Jefferson School of uh, from San Diego, California. Uh, professor uh, Herrera has uh, recently launched the Small Business Law Center at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law. And before entering academia, she ran a solo practice in Compton, California. She's also the co-founder and board president of Community Lawyers Incorporated. It is a nonprofit organization that provides low and moderate income people access to affordable legal services and it develops innovative opportunities for attorneys and law students in underserved communities. Welcome to New Solo Professor. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, well, thank you for being here. Um, let's dive right into it and talk about pro bono and how it can help new lawyers and law students find jobs and enrich their careers. For either law students or new lawyers, it is important for those that cannot find work to, to consider volunteering their time to offer uh, legal services at a reduced rate or pro bono. You created Community Lawyers Incorporated, and as I said a minute ago, it's a nonprofit organization that provides low and moderate income uh, people access to affordable legal services and, and develops innovative opportunities for, for attorneys and law students in underserved communities. What was the catalyst for creating Community Lawyers Incorporated? And how can law students and new lawyers benefit from such an organization as Community Lawyers Incorporated? Uh, well, the catalyst for for creating Community Lawyers was really what I saw in my own practice in, in the city of Compton, that there was uh, a huge number of individuals who needed legal services but couldn't uh, access the services at uh, market rates that attorneys were charging at the time, and also um, some of them didn't qualify for free legal services at, at existing legal aid organizations. And so there was a great need for it, but there was also, um, I think, a need amongst young attorneys, new attorneys, attorneys who leave law firms to to really um, you know understand what to do when you're out there and going uh, going out on your own. And so Community Lawyers was really created to address both of those needs. And so what we do is we work with uh, attorneys who have their own practices or young lawyers who are uh, just coming out of law school and, and are trying to get experience, and we ask them to come in and be part of our workshops where individuals come in and, and receive uh, some uh, some assistance in filling out forms or uh, some, you know, the attorneys who are experienced there will, will sit with them and give them a, a few options about how they should deal with their problem. So uh, it really helps address both of the needs that that um, and tries to you know find a place where they can converge. 
How can a lawyer or law student find organizations such as Community Lawyers Incorporated? There aren't too many organizations like Community Lawyers, and I'm, I don't say that just because I'm I, I'm the founder of it. But it's you know there there are a number of organizations that are. Um, that are legal aid organizations, and you have bar associations that might have a, a fair once a year or, or twice a year where attorneys can go and volunteer and provide information. But um, there are organizations that, that you can find through the State Bar Association or legal aid offices or just Google, but um, but there, there are not too many that will just you know say, you know, welcome any attorney who wants to participate. We'll, we'll provide you with some guidance. Um, uh, because most of these organizations that exist that are serving the needs of low-income individuals are so uh, overwhelmed with uh, res- with lack of resources that they can't always take on as many in- individuals as, as uh, th- those who want to volunteer. And that, that segues in, into my next question. Uh, I often have young lawyers ask me, uh, how can they best position themselves to prospective organizations when they're, when they're offering their services for free? And, and to clarify that a bit, they often tell me that they approach an organization, but they're turned away because it takes too long to train them, etc. What can a new lawyer do to improve their chances? Well, um, there are a couple of things. I, I think that you know they they need to understand that there are not every organization that they're going to approach is going to have a program in place to uh, to help train them, and so 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 that you know that that is a reality for for a lot of individuals. I think what what folks also need to think about when they're trying to get some experience is to go out there and knock on some doors of some solo and small firms because sometimes it's these individuals um, that are uh, overwhelmed with the kind of uh, with the amount of of, um, of work that they have and they could use somebody to help them to help them manage the the client load but also what's important for any new graduate or new attorney who's who's out on their own is that in, in these types of settings, they will learn something about law office management. They will learn something about uh, billing and uh, talking with clients about money. And I think that those uh, resources are also important to consider and not just look at kind of the traditional legal aid organizations as a volunteer opportunity. When a new lawyer has gained a pro bono position, what steps should they take to gain the most experience in that position? I think the most important thing is to really understand the client base. So understand who who they are providing services to, but also understand the law. And they need to be proactive about learning, right? So it's not just, okay, what is the uh, what is the senior attorney telling me to do, but actually going and, and looking at practice guides and, and doing legal research so that you can really have a strong foundation about the type of area, the type of law that, that you're discussing. When you have a uh, when you're seeking out a pro bono position, how can you be ensured that you will receive a meritorious case or project? I don't think you can. <laughs> I don't think you always can. But uh, but um, in terms of what you've decided is a meritorious case or project, but you know every if you if you look at every case or project as a learning experience, and each one of them has merit. Uh, when you're just learning a certain area of law. Um, it's it's important to to not um, place a value on oh I want the biggest case in terms of you know what what's going to make the most impact or which one has the most money involved, but really look at every single case of what it what is it that I'm learning from from this case that's going to help me in my practice. How important is it to research the training and support offered at pro bono organizations? It's important, but um, 
it shouldn't determine whether you go forward and, and volunteer because it's often, you know, some of like, as I mentioned before, some organizations, including community lawyers, were under-resourced and don't, you know, some don't have a formal training program, although there are support programs in place. And um, I always tell my students that it's better to be volunteering while they're sending out resumes looking for jobs or, or working on their business plan to create their own job than to be sitting around reading a training manual without anywhere to go to <laughs> from there. So, so I think it's important to research the training and support, but that that shouldn't be determined. And for those uh, pro bono organizations that do have uh, training and support, what would you consider adequate training and support? Primarily, it's, um, it's you know, having a, a circle of, of mentors. Some of them actually do have training programs. You know, maybe it's a Saturday uh, morning or, or perhaps it's, it's a, a weekday afternoon or, or it's a series of days that, that they provide training. And they usually have a training manual or something that you can refer to. Um, it's called law practice. We learn when we do. And so I think the most important part of uh, training and support is really having a circle of, of mentors, a circle of senior lawyers that you can go to and ask questions of. And can taking on pro bono cases lead to a job or, or a client base? Um, yeah, I, I think it can. And it really depends on where you're volunteering. So uh, it could happen in a couple of ways. So, you know, everyone, if you're working for a organization where uh, they're providing free services and, it's, and the free services are determined based on uh, financial eligibility. Well, not everyone that's going to come look for that service will call, qualify and many of them leave uh, these organizations still needing a lawyer, needing someone to help them navigate a process. And so there might be a potential client base in the uh, group of individuals that don't qualify for the free services where you might be volunteering. At the same time, if you're working for a solo or small firm, there might be cases that that lawyer doesn't want to take. And oftentimes we hear that solo uh, attorneys, or in particular the ones that are just starting, and then new lawyers are taking on some of the cases that other attorneys don't want because other attorneys might be more experienced. Sometimes these uh, cases are more resource intensive, so you really have to think about whether you are able to to take something like this. But but there is, um, you know, there are potential, uh, there is a potential client base that, that comes from volunteering. What concerns should be addressed with a malpractice carrier? Well, I think you want to find out what it is, you know, what it is that your malpractice provider covers um, and, and what they cover in when you are volunteering. There are some states that have uh, ethics rules that relax the issue of conflicts, for example, when you're just providing some limited scope service, some advice and counseling, um, something that just says, okay, I'm, I'm only going to be uh, doing this under this existing organization and it is a, a recognized nonprofit legal services provider. And so you really have to look at the particular ethics code in your state and, and talk to your individual malpractice uh, insurance provider. And, and to follow that up, do most pro bono organizations have uh, a cover someone that's offering pro bono services, or, or, or how does that work with the with the pro bono organizations in regards to malpractice? Uh, most of the established legal aid programs do have a malpractice uh, insurance policy in place that that covers some um, you know a limited scope of of um, attorney involvement, but the majority of them do require, and even those that do have some policy, it, you, you as an attorney who's volunteering as a solo attorney, you need to have your own malpractice coverage. There are some carriers that have uh, policies that will cover you for an extra $200 a year 
for a particular organization that you may, volunteer, may be volunteering with. So again, it's just important to talk with your malpractice provider to see what products are available for you to take advantage of. But it is important for you to look into uh, adding an additional um, level of coverage for any pro bono work that you do. And is it standard uh, for the pro bono organizations to cover an attorney's expenses when they're working on, on pro bono matters? No. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's not standard to, to uh, you know, if you, you take it on pro bono, I mean, it, it really depends, right? I mean, it, it depends. If, if you're talking about expenses such as, as filing fees or something like that, then it's probably up to the client or the organization has made some arrangement for fee waivers. Uh, if it has to do with, um, you know, research, the organization might have uh, access for you to do some online research uh, through an existing agreement they might have with the, you know, Lexus or somebody similar to that. But, um, you know, in terms of you driving to court or paying your parking fees or some of that, it's generally uh, standard to have the attorney cover those expenses themselves. Okay. Uh, we need to take a short break. When we return, more with Luz Herrera. If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments, and best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com LTN. That's firmmanager.com LTN. Want to stay in touch with the Legal Talk Network and get our shows automatically? RSS provides home delivery. You don't have to remember where to click. The good stuff comes right to you, automatically and free. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and hit the RSS button at the top of the page. It says, Our Podcast Feeds. Now you'll be all set. If you like listening to New Solo, you might also like the Unbillable Hour on LegalTalkNetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. Welcome back to New Solo on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're joined by attorney Luz Herrera, assistant professor of law at Thomas Jefferson out of San Diego, California. Let's get back into it. How important is a clearly written retainer agreement in regards to the volunteer lawyer, the pro bono client, and the pro bono program? It is really important, probably the most important part of it all, right? It's exhibit A to any malpractice claim. So, <laughs> um, and I tell my professional responsibility students that, but, you know, it's, you want to understand exactly what you're, you're being, you're being asked to do and the client needs to also understand what you're being asked to do. And so I think that conversation with the client, um, is really, you know, the, the, the retainer agreement is where you document that. And so it's the most important part of, of any 
uh, attorney-client relationship, but it's, I think it becomes particularly relevant for the pro bono program, the organization, the volunteer lawyer, because then there's no misunderstanding about what the client should expect. Um, and in particular, is because most pro bono services are currently being delivered on a limited scope basis. Uh, so services are being unbundled so that an attorney is not usually on the hook for the entire case, uh, which means that the client doesn't have an attorney for their entire problem, but that an attorney, particular volunteer attorney, comes in to deal with perhaps the most difficult part of the, pro- of the, of the problem. Perhaps it's attending a hearing or uh, defending someone in a deposition, but perhaps the same attorney is not going to be the one who, you know, takes the matter to trial. So it, it's really important, and I think it's particularly important for uh, individuals who work in jurisdictions that allow limited scope unbundled services uh, to be very clear about what their uh, scope of representation is. And is there anything specifically that a volunteer lawyer should look for in these retainer agreements? Um, yeah, how, how long, you know, what what's my commitment to this? Um what are the procedures for withdrawal, and and what is what is what are the client's rights? You know, what should I be expecting from the client? Um, again, I think the length of representation is probably the most important part. So uh, that's usually described in the first, you know, first paragraph, first or, first or second paragraph that really describes the scope of the work. What steps should a new lawyer take to parlay those pro bono efforts into a job or a client base? Well, I, I think one of the most important things when you're doing pro bono work, um, volunteering in any organization, whether, whether it's legal work or not, is really developing uh, relationships with others in your field or other people that have similar interests. And so um, so part of it is just developing these relationships with the, the leaders of the organizations that you're volunteering for uh, and also getting to know a network of other volunteers that, that could become professional resources. But uh, in terms of, you know, so that's kind of the bigger picture. But, uh, you know, overall, whenever you're doing any kind of work, particularly volunteer work, you want to do, um, always want to practice ethically and do good work. So, you know, be attentive to the rules of the organization and, um, you know, learn from that organization what it is that you can take into, uh, in, into your own practice. Right. And in particular, again, it's, you know, marketing, finding the market where um, where the client base is not being served to develop your own network of, um, of potential clients. How much time on a weekly basis is reasonable to devote to pro bono for a new lawyer? I think it's as much as as, uh, as a new lawyer can afford. So, um, again, if you're going to be, you know, sending a hundred resumes a week or or or, uh, or or going out into the streets and 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 trying to get the word out about your new law firm, uh, I'm not sure how effective those things are in and really putting together um, I mean, they they help, right? Everything that you do is going to build into your firm. but but I think it's important to really get some practical experience, you know develop, identify mentors within these programs. Um, identify potential clients. And so I just don't understand why more um, law students in particular wouldn't go and do pro bono work, particularly when they're waiting for bar results and, um, you know, they are no, no longer students and are trying to figure out their next step. It's one of these things where you can go volunteer in the morning or in the day, come back in the afternoon and say, this is what I learned. This is what I'm going to incorporate into my business practice, right? 
What if a pro bono case becomes too much to handle? Well, you never want to get to that point, right? So that you should be able to <laughs> to say, well, this is kind of beyond the scope of, of what I'm comfortable with. Or, uh, you know, when you get the assignment, understand who are the, what are the resources that are available for me if I get into uh, a problem or if I, you know, if I'm if I'm not sure what to do with it next. So really identifying who are the individuals that uh, might be resources to you when you get to a point where you think this is a little bit overwhelming for me. Um, and too much to handle shouldn't be the night before the hearing or the night before the trial, <laughs> right? Or, or be, be the night before the deadline. Um, so that's where procrastination and all these things come into play. But, but it's really, um, you know, it should never be too much to handle because organizations, whether it's a, um, a for-profit or non-profit organization that you're volunteering for, should have uh, enough mentoring and training in place so that you know what you're doing. If a new lawyer wanted to start their own nonprofit legal services uh, organization, what are some initial considerations? I guess the first recommendation, uh, the first um, consideration is who will fund it, because nonprofit organizations there 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 are many and they're competing for the same dollars, and so you really want to find out if if you know if it's worthwhile to do this, if there's enough support, if, if there's enough financial support to sustain the organization. I think that's the main thing. I think the other thing is that even if there is sufficient money to sustain the nonprofit effort, um, you want to find out if there's not already another organization that you can partner up with. And um, because it's really in this day and age, we're really looking at consolidating resources and um, and trying, you know, there's no point in recreating something that already exists where you can actually build on something. Is it even practical for a new lawyer to undertake such an endeavor? To begin a nonprofit, sure. um, yeah. I mean, to begin a nonprofit or to begin your own practice, right? I mean, it, it all has um, there, there's some amount of, of fear that goes <laughs> that goes into it. And I do think it is it is practical. The answers are different depending on what we're talking about. If you're talking about a non a nonprofit, it is practical for a new lawyer to do, but it's not practical to do it alone because a nonprofit organization requires a community investment, and it, it's going to require more than just the new lawyer. Uh, the new lawyer's commitment or passion for it. If you're talking about setting up your own practice, your own law firm, then, you know, it is absolutely practical to do. And I actually try to encourage my students to to do more of that um, and rather than, you know, be unemployed for a year or end up in a work environment that's detrimental to, to you. Um, and so it is practical, in particular these days when there is so much information uh, online and so much information available through bar associations uh, and programs like yours that can really help provide some additional support to to individuals. What we have now is uh, probably, I don't know, 80% more than what I had when I was uh, starting my own practice in 2002. So, uh, so I think it's more doable now than ever. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? I was trying. I was trying to narrow it down to two, and I, I, I think, I mean, to one. But I, I ended up with two golden nuggets. Okay. So the the first one, and and these are things that really helped me in in my own practice. Um, so the the two pieces of advice that I received. One was from my um, one of my law professors in law in in law school, obviously, and uh, one of them was that I should have a personal board of directors which is really a group of individuals that exist outside of, of the, you know, um, of the law firm that can keep you accountable to you. 
right? So it's a group of individuals that say, hey, you're not, um, um, you know, taking any vacations. Um, you, you don't look very happy. Um, you know, are you eating? It's, it's the folks that help you um, be accountable to yourself because there are so many pressures that come in, in when you're running your own practice that, that you sometimes need somebody else to remind you that you are living in your skin. Uh, the second piece of advice that I received by one of my mentors was that if I ever had a problem, that before I ran to blame, you know, somebody else for it, the client or anybody else, that I wanted to look at the problem and understand what which part of that problem was my responsibility. Because his um, his uh, uh, rule of, of thumb is that if I have a problem, 50% of that problem is my responsibility. And I found that it really worked well in all situations. And I often shared that piece of advice with clients and it helped them really take ownership of whatever situation they were dealing with. Well, that about does it for this edition of New Solo. Remember, you can find all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. And a very special thanks to my guest, attorney and professor, uh, Luz Herrera, for joining me today. Uh, Luz, if someone wants to find more information on today's topic, how can they reach you? Um, I am available at um, through the Thomas Jefferson School of Law website, and you can also reach me through communitylawyers.org. And, of course, you can t- contact me directly at kyle at legaltalknetwork.com. We're out of time. I would like to thank our sponsor, Firm Manager from LexisNexis. You can find out more about Firm Manager at myfirmmanager.com backslash L-T-N. Join us next time for another episode of New Solo here on the Legal Talk Network. Have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to New Solo today. Hope you'll listen to next month's edition with attorney Kyle Gelcher right here on the Legal Talk Network. And a reminder to check out Firm Manager at MyFirmManager.com forward slash LTN. It's a business solution for lawyers created by lawyers from LexisNexis. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.